Welcome back to Run the List, a medical education podcast in partnership with McGraw-Hill Medical. Our hosts are Dr. Naveen Kumar, Dr. Walker Red, Dr. Emily Gutowski, Dr. Joyce Sow, and myself, Blake Smith. As a quick disclaimer, this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only and should not be understood as medical advice under any circumstances. Welcome back to Run the List. Today, I'm here again with Dr. Farouk, and we will be continuing our nephrology series with an episode on approach to urine studies. Urinalyses are a test that we order very, very frequently in the hospital. Almost everyone who's admitted to the hospital gets one of these, and we thought it would be really helpful to kind of go over a general approach to urinalysis and urine sediment, not with any particular cases, but just to run through some kinds of scenarios and some specific situations to look out for. So Dr. Farouk, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me again. And I love that there is a full episode dedicated to essentially, you know, the urinalysis and some other urine studies. Um, as a nephrologist of all the tests that we have, uh, you know, blood test, ultrasound, kidney biopsy, I think for many of us, the urinalysis is maybe one of our most favorite tests because it is a cheap, non-invasive, and highly, highly informative test. And many of us, you know, kind of affectionately call it the liquid biopsy because it, again, is giving us a look into what is happening at the level of the kidney. And as we'll discuss, I think there are a lot of other clues that we can take away if we can understand how to interpret the urinalysis findings properly. And so um, I think maybe one approach is that we can just go through uh, different components of the urinalysis unless you want to start in any particular place. No, that's fine with me. Take it away with the liquid biopsy, please. Sure. <laughs> so I, you know, I think the, the first pearl for this is that particularly if a patient with acute kidney injury, uh, before we go down a rabbit hole of sending serologies and all the antibodies in the world, please start with a urinalysis. And again, as we'll see here, there's a lot of valuable information to be gained. And so if we look at how the urinalysis is reported, and it's a little bit different in, in every institution, most of the components are going to be relatively standard. And so there is a little bit of a difference between what we call the urine dipstick and the, quote, formal urinalysis. So the urine dipstick is essentially what it says. It's saying you have a, a strip um, that has, for each of the different components of the urinalysis, there's a little uh, colored square that is there. You dip the stick in the urine, um, and then you leave it out to dry for about a minute, and then you're looking for the change in color, and the urine dipstick will come with a key of essentially how dark or light a particular uh, square is, and that will give you an estimate of, for example, how much protein is there, how much uh, hematuria does the dipstick think is in there, um, and things like that. And the difference between that and the formal urinalysis is that with the formal urinalysis, someone in the lab is actually also doing a microscopic analysis and so can confirm the presence of different cell types like red blood cells and white blood cells. And so generally, one of the first things that's reported in the urinalysis is what we call the urine-specific gravity. And I remember when I was a medical student and a resident, that was a number that we re would really just kind of gloss over. It was not something that was really focused on in medical school physiology or kidney pathophysiology. But it can really give us a lot of insight into what's going on, not only at the level of the nephron and the kidney, but also some insight into the patient's hydration status. And so particularly in patients that may have hyponatremia, and those are situations in which we're wondering, how is the kidney doing at getting rid of water? Because when we think about sodium disturbances, that's really an imbalance of water. 
So if someone has hyponatremia, then the appropriate response from the kidney is to urinate what we would call very, very dilute urine or urine whose specific gravity is very close to that of water. And so the specific gravity of water is 1.0. And so when we're looking at the urine specific gravity, we're looking at it kind of in that context. And so while it's hard to say what a normal specific gravity is, because again, it depends on what your hydration status is, and that's independent of your sodium level. And so for example, if um, I'm measuring the specific gravity of a of an intern that's been you know working for several hours has had no access to water then I would expect that their urine specific gravity would be very high and so what is high to me I would look for a number that is 1.015 or something higher than that so if we see a patient that has a urine specific gravity of 1.030, and that tells me that they're likely have low hydration and maybe even low overall volume status. And so how can that be helpful in a patient that has acute kidney injury? Well, if on my differential, I think that they are hypovolemic or have what we would call, quote, pre-renal AKI, a very high specific gravity is going to be very much in support of that diagnosis. And again, this is just one data point. And so just because I have a higher or low specific gravity does not really mean that I can say that what is more clinically what seems is happening from all the other data that this is going to overrule that. But this is one interesting piece of data to look at. Another context in which this can be very helpful is if I have a patient who's hyponatremia I'm treating and I'm worried that my next sodium value is going to be too high and I'm worried about overcorrection. If while I'm waiting for the sodium to come back from the lab on the basic metabolic panel, I look at the specific gravity because that will come back very quickly and that is close to one, I know the patient is urinating essentially what we would call free water and I can be expecting that my next sodium level is probably going to be much higher. And so that's a, a little bit about how we can look at the specific gravity. And another way to think about this is a, you know, a, a quicker way to assess the urine osmolality as the two generally correlate um, pretty well. And another number that's similar to the specific gravity in that it has no really normal range and really depends on the patient's intake is the urinary pH. And so um, with respect to AKI, the urine pH is not really that helpful. But if we have a patient with a renal tubular acidosis or some sort of acid-based disturbance, a higher or low pH can be potentially meaningful. Another interesting clinical use of the urinary pH is if you have a very high urine pH and you think a patient might have a urinary tract infection and um, on the ultrasound you saw a kidney stone, that would be highly suggestive of what we would call a urine infection with a ure urea splitting organism and leading to a struvite stone, also called a staghorn calculi. And so some examples of bacteria that would cause that would be Klebsiella, uh, proteus, mycoplasma, staphylococcus can also do that. And on the flip side, very low urine pH can be seen in patients that have diabetes, type 4, renal tubular acidosis, and this can predispose to the formation of uric acid stones. And so both the urine pH and specific gravity can be very helpful into helping us either support or move us away from particular diagnoses that we're thinking about. Often when people come in to the hospital and we get a UA, we're worried about UTI. Some of the things that we might expect to see that are positive on the UA at that point are leukosterase and white blood cells, as well as nitrites. Can any of these tests kind of guide us towards what organism might be causing a UTI? 
Absolutely. The year analysis can obviously be very helpful for that. And so some of the classic findings are, as you mentioned, so one is going to be the presence of white blood cells or pyuria. And so there's two ways that the year analysis does that. So one is the reporting of white blood cells. And so again, we can't do this from a urine dipstick because we don't have somebody looking under the microscope. Um, but we do have the test for leukocyte esterase. So this is looking for essentially the enzyme that is present in the white blood cells. And so we're correlating that with the presence of white blood cells. So on a formal urinalysis, if you have leukocyte esterase present, this should almost always correlate with the presence of white blood cells in the microscopic analysis. And the way that the, micro, the microscope um, analysis is reported is X number of cells per high power field. And so generally anything more than zero to five would be considered abnormal and pyuria. And so when we think about pyuria, we can break it up into two groups. So one is sterile pyuria. So sterile pyuria means that I have white blood cells without the presence of a detectable organism. And then we have pyuria with a positive urine culture. And so the nitrites can be somewhat helpful in trying to identify the presence of a particular kind of bacteria. And so the nitrites are essentially going to be there if there is a bacteria present in the urine that is going to reduce a nitrate to a nitrite. And so if I have a bacteria that has the ability to do that, then I may pick up a positive nitrite. And so in general, there's going to be gram-negative organisms. And so what happens if I have a non-nitrite reducing organism? That's going to essentially be a false negative for a positive culture. And so that's why whenever we have any sign of a urinary tract infection on a urinalysis, that should be accompanied by a urine culture in the right clinical setting. And so why do I say in the right clinical setting? We have to think about where did the urine collection come from? So is it a urine that has been in a patient that has an indwelling catheter for, you know, many weeks? If I send a urine culture from that um, without any clinical evidence of a UTI, for example, you know, fever, elevated white cell count, um, hypothermia, any sign of infection, then it becomes a little bit confusing about what do I do with that positive urine culture. And so we, we really want to try to avoid treating urine cultures that are just what we would call colonization and not and a real infection because that can lead to, you know, worsening of antibiotic resistance, which we all know already is a big problem today. And so to answer your question, how does the UA help us with what kind of organism is potentially present? One, it's going to give us, is there evidence of a UTI? And so you can have urinary tract infections without pyuria, but for the most part, we're looking for that pyuria to be there. And the second is going to be the presence or absence of nitrites. So if the patient is clinically presenting, like they have a urinary tract infection, they have fever, dysuria, there's pyuria, but the nitrites are negative, then I would be thinking of more of a non-nitrite reducing organism to be the cause of that UTI. And I, I think it's also worth mentioning that sometimes hematuria can be the presenting urinalysis abnormality of a patient with a urinary tract infection. And so we don't always need to be so, you know, pyuria centric, even though that classically is what we think about. So if someone is coming in with presumed UTI, what other findings on the UA might you expect to see? Yeah, that's a great question. And so we see this often when somebody in the setting of what clinically really appears to be a urinary tract infection, they have a positive urine culture and the clinical findings. They also have what we would call 
you know, I would say maybe a full house urinalysis where they have proteinuria, there's, you know, hematuria, may even be gross hematuria, they have pyuria, maybe the creatinine is a little bit elevated. And so now there's some concern for acute kidney injury. And so the consult is, does this patient also have a glomerular disease that's leading to hematuria as well as proteinuria? And so the short answer to that is, you know, we need to treat one thing and then, you know, reassess. And so urine, urinary tract infection can definitely lead to these abnormal findings in the urinalysis. And so the, the key step here is to treat the urinary tract infection, ensure that the patient clinically improves, and then to repeat the urinalysis. And so like most things in clinical medicine, if you have an abnormal finding and you don't really have a great explanation for it, or there is something else going on that is acute and active, it is to let that active um, entity improve, be treated, and then repeat whatever the abnormality is and see if it improves. And so there may be a case where, you know, the pyuria goes away, the hematuria goes away, but the proteinuria persists. And so then that would warrant more investigation as to why does that patient have proteinuria. Got it. You mentioned the full house urinalysis when everything comes back positive. Most of the time, these urinalyses will also come with urine microscopy. And we might see things like squamous epithelial cells come back positive on the microscopy how would we think about a sample that comes back with squamous cells? Yeah, so squamous cells are something that we see often not only reported by the lab, but we haven't talked about this yet, but in nephrology, we do a lot of manual urine microscopy as well, which actually we feel is often very essential to evaluating patients with acute kidney injury um, or if we're looking for a patient that may potentially have kidney stones. And so the presence of squamous epithelial cells is not pathologic. Um, it may indicate that maybe the urine was not a clean catch, um, but there actually is not really a lot of data to support that, you know, even if there is, you know, good cleaning before the urine collection, that it really impacts the findings that you have. And so do we see squamous epithelial cells? Yes. Do they mean anything in the, you know, context of what is causing this patient's pathology? Uh, no. Um, but there are other kinds of epithelial cells that can be pathologic, and those are the ones that we try to pay attention to. And the main one here would be the renal tubular epithelial cell. Um, and so renal tubular epithelial cells, as they are named, are coming from the tubule. And when we see them in the urine, it is abnormal. They should not be there. And they are there because generally they are injured and they have basically been sloughed off into the urine. And so they have a pretty classic appearance and they're pretty easy to distinguish from the other kinds of epithelial cells. So squamous epithelial cells, which come from the lower GU tract or transitional epithelial cells, which come from a little bit higher up. The renal tubular epithelial cells, we also like to call them artex because it's a mouthful. They tend to look like um, fried eggs. And so they have a kind of a bit of a bigger nucleus with, with not that much cytoplasm in them. And so why are they so helpful when we find them? They can be an earlier sign, actually, of acute tubular necrosis. And so, you know, we learn in medical school and residency that if somebody has acute tubular necrosis or ATN, we're looking for dark, muddy brown casts that are, you know, all over the textbooks. But a more subtle finding are actually these Artex. And there have actually been scores that have been um, developed and studied for patients that have ATN, and the more Artex and muddy brown cast you have, those actually correlate with the severity of ATN and potentially even the likelihood of recovery. Interesting. Are Artex something that can be seen by the lab when you send urine down, or would that have to be spun by GenMed or the renal team? 
Yeah. So I have not seen, um, other than maybe in very rare instances, the lab report that. And from my experience on the microscopic analysis, aside from the number of white cells and red cells that are seen per high power field, if they're reporting specific types of epithelial cells or casts or crystals, then there is an overwhelming number of them. Um, but um, from what I have seen, you know, comparing our manual analysis to what the lab reports, if it's a more subtle finding or not something that's really overwhelming the entire sample, it may or may not be reported by the lab, which is why we really try to do manual analysis um, whenever we can. So that kind of brings us to when would we ask the renal team to do a manual analysis for us or take the urine ourselves to spin? What kinds of clinical situations? I think the main clinical situation that we're looking for um, answers in the urine or trying to do this, quote, liquid biopsy are in patients that have either acute kidney injury or we're looking for evidence of glomerular disease as suggested by the clinical presentation or a urine dipstick or urinalysis that has already been done. And so how can that be helpful? And so, for example, if you see on the urinalysis that there has been um, some proteinuria that has been picked up, and so a urinalysis is not a quantitative assessment. So it's going to basically tell you that there's a little bit of protein, there's some protein, or there's a lot of protein. And from our experience, we know that that qualitative assessment is not necessarily that indicative of how much protein is actually there. So in my practice, I think of the proteinuria on the urinalysis or the urine dipstick as a very kind of, um, you know, just a screen. So if there's protein that's picked up, then I'm going to go to the next step, which is going to be to quantify that. And if there's no protein there, then I might feel pretty good that there is no protein in the sample. And so an example of that is that say that you're, the protein that is reported by the urinalysis is plus one. So plus one would be on the, on the lower end with the highest being, you know, plus three or plus four. And so I look at the specific gravity and that is close to one. So that means that I have a very, very dilute urine. And so like anything else, if you have a dilute sample, everything in that sample is probably going to be dilute. And so we have definitely seen cases where somebody has one plus proteinuria, and then I do a more accurate quantification of the proteinuria, which can be done with something called a spot urine protein to creatinine ratio or a urine uh, 24-hour collection. And then I actually find that the patient has nephrotic range proteinuria or you know greater than three or three and a half grams over 24 hours. And so I would think of the urinalysis is kind of an estimate. And so if you've seen somebody that has a little bit of protein on UA, that is definitely a reason to not only spin the urine, to look for other evidence of nephrotic syndrome. And so what we'd be looking for would be something called fat oval bodies, which are basically macrophages that have picked up lipid that's in the urine. Because if you think back again to medical school, when patients have nephrotic syndrome, the liver tries to compensate for low protein levels. And one of those compensations is making more more lipids. So because you have more lipids in the blood, you get more lipids in the urine. And then that can show up very clearly as fat cells when we look at the urine sample. So it's a very kind of elegant mechanism of how the urine is really reflecting the process that's going on in the rest of the body. And then if we think a little bit about other causes of acute kidney injury and glomerular disease, um, particularly uh, glomerulonephritis, one classic finding is hematuria, and um, a specific type of dysmorphic red blood cell called an acanthocyte. 
So that's basically the red blood cell that has a abnormal membrane and so might look like it has blebs coming off. Um, we sometimes describe this to medical students as a Mickey Mouse red blood cells. And this is, again, something that the laboratory is not going to report. And so this is some a patient in which we have high suspicion for glomerulonephritis based on the clinical history, the uh, urinalysis picked up some hematuria. Um, the lab reported, you know, 11 to 25 red blood cells per high power field. And now I look at the urine sample under the microscope and I'm seeing red blood cell casts as well as these acanthocytes. And so that can be very helpful, not only in the inpatient, but also outpatient side, because you may actually save somebody from a urologic procedure. Because if somebody sees that hematuria that is persistent and then refers the patient to a urologist and we have had no microscopic analysis, then the next reasonable step might actually be a cystoscopy when what the patient really needs is a kidney biopsy. One other scenario that I just wanted to bring up, which kind of comes up a lot in teaching and sometimes in practice as well, is that patients may have blood on their UA, but then no red blood cells on their microscopy. In that case, we assume that the blood that's being picked up in the lab is myoglobin. Is that right? That, that's a great point, And I'm glad you brought that up. You know, I think something that really frustrates uh, nephrologists is that the naming of this blood on the urinalysis, because as you said, it's not really looking for blood. And so what that test really is doing is it's looking for peroxidase activity that hemoglobin possesses. And so it's actually looking for um, the conversion of this dye called, I think it's called benzidine to a type of chromogen or, or color that you can pick up. And so if there's hemoglobin that's present in the sample, and so in theory, if you have hematuria, you have red blood cells that are lysed in the sample, they release hemoglobin, and then the peroxidase from that hemoglobin basically makes this reaction occur. And so when the urinalysis tells you that there's blood, then it's really saying that there's peroxidase. The problem is that, as you mentioned, that there are other scenarios in which we can have hemoglobin. And so one of those is myoglobin also has this hemoglobin type peroxidase activity. And then the other is that you can actually have free hemoglobin in a setting that is has nothing to do with the presence of red blood cells. So in patients that have thrombotic microangiopathy, that have intravascular hemolysis, what does that do? That leads to free hemoglobin. Um, and so that's why we get low haptoglobin because free hemoglobin is binding haptoglobin. And that hemoglobin, anything that is excess in the blood generally is going to be coming out in the urine because the glomerulus is not designed to, you know, reabsorb that and the tubule is not designed to reabsorb that. So if you have free hemoglobin in the urine um, in the setting of hemolysis, you're going to have the same finding of blood. And so like some of these other components on the UA, there can be reasons for false negative too. So if you have somebody that has very high vitamin C levels, um, they're you know taking vitamin C supplements, that can actually inhibit the activity of this peroxidase and that can actually give you a false negative. Um, and so another example of why why uh, manual microscopy can be, be very beneficial alongside um, the, the lab urinalysis findings. So I certainly have a new appreciation for the urinalysis and everything that it can teach us about what's going on with the patient. Thank you, Dr. Farouk, again, for joining us around the list. It was great. Thanks for having me. And it's never wrong to send a UA and spin the urine. 